0: One week season.
1: NFL Edge. Audio.
0: Vikings at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, November 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 37. Game overview by Mike Johnson. This game features two teams with 500 records that have had an up-and-down first half of the season, but are both in the thick of the playoff hunt. Both teams will have new starting quarterbacks for this game, with the Vikings starting rookie Jaron Hall and the Falcons starting journeyman Taylor Heinicke. The Falcons' pass defense is the only area between the two defenses that ranks outside the top 12 in the NFL. There are a plethora of offensive weapons on both sides of the ball, giving this game more upside than what you would expect from a game with a Vegas-implied total of only 37. The Vikings' defense has the highest blitz rate in the NFL. How Minnesota Will Try to Win The Vikings started this season off very poorly, losing their first three games and being put in a position where many people were suggesting they bench Kirk Cousins, tank this season, and try to draft a stud quarterback in the 2024 draft. They answered the call, however, and won four of their next five games to fight their way back into playoff contention and a 500 record. As fate would have it, they will end up playing this year without Cousins anyway, after he tore his Achilles in their convincing Week 8 win over the Packers. In the aftermath of Cousins' injury, the Vikings have expressed their confidence in rookie quarterback Jaron Hall, but also obtained Josh Dobbs from the Cardinals in a trade before Tuesday's deadline. The Vikings have already announced that Hall will start this week as Dobbs gets adjusted and learns the playbook, but we have no word yet on whether or not Dobbs will be active. The Vikings' pass offense to date has been explosive and impressive, ranking 12th in the NFL in DVOA, despite playing three games without arguably the best wide receiver in the NFL, Justin Jefferson. They also rank 4th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, showing their aggressive nature under second-year head coach Kevin O'Connell now down their star wide receiver and top 12 NFL QB. Yes, it's true. It is highly likely we see a different offense, at least in the short term. Jaron Hall is a fifth-round rookie quarterback out of BYU, who drew praise from teammates and coaches for how he stepped in last week, and most notably, how he led and played with poise. He did have one turnover in his short time on the field, but kept it together and got the Vikings out of Lambeau with a win. Highly respected NFL Draft analyst Lance Zerline had this to say about Hall in his NFL.com pre-draft prospect analysis. An undersized pocket quarterback with unimpressive arm strength, Hall's field command gives him a shot to make it at the next level. He throws with excellent ball placement to targets on the move and delivers a feathery soft deep ball with accuracy. His lack of drive velocity creates smaller margins for error and his timing needs to be impeccable to beat NFL man coverage. Hall operates with ideal poise from the pocket. He does an adequate job of reading coverages and getting rid of the ball without taking sacks. The size and arm strength will concern some teams, but offenses operating out of heavy play action with levels-based route concepts could target him as a future solid backup. We can almost certainly expect the Vikings to have a more balanced game plan in Hall's first start as they try to manage the game around his limitations. This is a chess match, however, and the Falcons will know that and are likely to load the box and bring pressure forcing Hall to prove he can beat them. Hall has the luxury of two elite playmakers in tight end TJ Hawkinson and rookie wide receiver Jordan Addison. Hall's touch on deep balls that was noted in his pre-draft write-up will be key, and they will likely dial up a couple of shots to Addison, as the Falcons will almost certainly dare him to beat them deep the same way they dared Will Levis to do so for the Titans. The difference here is that Hall does not have close to the same arm strength or size as Levis making it less likely that he's able to burn them the way he did last week. After playing in several shootouts to start the season, Vikings games have failed to reach 40 total points in four of the last five weeks. Their defense has been improving and the Falcons offense has been struggling, meaning that the Vikings will almost certainly be focused on once again winning the turnover and field possession game while protecting their young quarterback. In the passing game, they may have to involve their running backs and secondary wide receivers, KJ Osborne and Brandon Powell, more this week as they look for ways to move the ball down the field as the Falcons defense shrinks things on their running game and keys in on Hawkinson and Addison. How Atlanta will try to win. Head coach and self-proclaimed genius Arthur Smith was embarrassed in his return to Tennessee last week as a left-for-dead Titans team with huge questions at a dominant performance on both sides of the ball and Smith's offense struggled mightily, failing to score a touchdown for the first three quarters of the game before slightly saving face with a couple of late scores. Desmond Ritter had a very tough first half and was evaluated for a concussion. He apparently passed the concussion test, but not the Smith test, as he was not ruled out by medical staff, but Arthur Smith made the switch to Tyler Heineke for the second half. Heineke is a career backup QB who has had a little bit of success at various points as a starter during his career. In last week's surprise appearance against the Titans, Heineke did provide a bit of late game spark, but was not overly impressive although it was a noticeable improvement from what Ritter was doing in the first half. The larger issue for the Falcons is the lack of consistent production they are able to get out of their young and extremely talented offensive skill players. Through eight weeks, the Falcons ranked dead last in PROE. Despite spending top 10 picks on elite pass catchers at their positions in the last three drafts, Arthur Smith continues to hold strong to his run-heavy principles. Granted, the Falcons' QB situation the last couple of years has not been great, but it's borderline malpractice to not find a way to be more dynamic with what he's working with. To their credit, the Falcons are speeding up their pace recently and ranked 9th in raw pace of play while also ranking in the top half of the league in situation neutral pace. Perhaps Ritter, who was the epitome of inconsistency, was holding back Smith even more than he already does to himself, and some stability at the quarterback position will let them open things up a bit in terms of play calling as well. The Vikings lead the NFL in blitz rate, and will certainly be intent on bringing pressure against Heineke when he drops back. In 2022, Heineke made nine starts and ended the season ranked 37th out of 40 qualifying quarterbacks in PFF grade when under pressure. It will be interesting to see how Minnesota approaches this game defensively considering their current quarterback situation. On one hand, continuing to bring pressure gives them a good chance of creating havoc and forcing mistakes from Heineke. On the other hand, an aggressive defense that leaves itself vulnerable for big plays increases the chances of digging a hole and putting Hall in tough situations. Defensive coordinator Brian Flores has this unit rolling, however, so I'd expect more of the same from Minnesota. Heineke can extend plays with his legs and distribute the ball relatively well. Last season in Washington, there were stark splits in target share for star-wide receiver Terry McLaurin, with Heineke on the field as opposed to any of their other QBs. This data point would tend to suggest that Drake London would be a focal point of the passing game, but unfortunately, London has missed practice both Wednesday and Thursday this week, putting his status and effectiveness in doubt heading into Sunday. There's a good chance the Falcons will do what the Falcons do. Run the ball at the highest rate in the league. Jaron Hall isn't going to scare the Falcons coming into the game, and the amount of points they think they need to win is likely a low number as long as they avoid turnovers. If Arthur Smith took this long to move to Heineke, then his level of trust is likely not very high at this point, and he's going to trust his own methods and instincts, for better or worse, rather than putting the game in Heineke's hands. Likeliest Game Flow Taylor Heineke started 24 games over the last two seasons for the Commanders and finished with a 12-11-1 record, including a 5-3-1 record in 2022. Meanwhile, Jaron Hall had a 7-5 record at BYU last year. Obviously, there are a lot of contextual things to consider, and football is a team game, but the reality here is that one of these quarterbacks has shown an ability to lead a competitive NFL team, and the other one was barely over 500 as a 24-year-old in college playing a relatively weak schedule. Both defenses have been burned a couple of times this year, but have solid overall metrics, and both teams have some offensive playmakers. The Falcons are at home and have the advantage at the quarterback position, however, which gives them the upper hand and makes them the team most likely to control the game. The likelihood of a conservative game plan by both offenses and questions at the quarterback position makes a close, low-scoring game the most likely game flow here. The team who wins the turnover battle is most likely to win the game, and both teams will probably be walking on eggshells with that knowledge. Again, there is a reason why this game has the lowest total on the Week 9 slate, and those numbers do represent a most likely outcome. With that being said, we should also consider the high volatility that this game presents. We have wild cards at quarterback on both sides, and there's certainly a chance that turnovers by one side create a multiple score gap early in the game, and force one team to open things up. We also have an aggressive Minnesota defense and an Atlanta defense that will almost certainly be daring Hall to beat them with big plays. As noted earlier, there are some big time playmakers on both teams and the defensive aggression we are likely to see from both sides can quickly backfire when facing explosive players. This combination of potential explosive plays and field flipping turnovers makes this game's projection extremely fragile and volatile, so while we can't expect a high probability of a disappointing snoozefest from this matchup, we also shouldn't be surprised if a lot of unpredictable things happen. Seahawks at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, November 5th, 1pm Eastern, over-under 44. Game Overview by Low. Gus Edwards managed a full practice on Thursday after a DNP Wednesday, meaning he should be good to go on Sunday through a toe injury. Tyler Lockett went from DNP on Wednesday to Limited on Thursday, while DK Metcalf went from full participant on Wednesday to DNP on Thursday. Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll has made a point of singling out rookie running back Zach Charbonnet in both press conferences this week. Not exactly actionable intel, but worth mentioning nonetheless, particularly because Week 8 was the first game all season that the rookie outsnapped the incumbent. The Ravens lead the league in points allowed per game, 15.1%, and have given up just three rushing scores and six passing scores this season. How Seattle will try to win The Seahawks continue to be a team looking to shorten games, doing little to put teams away before the fourth quarter, where they look to fundamentals and defensive prowess to wear their opponent down over time. It's hard to argue against the way they approach winning games with them now in control of the division, even if it requires a bit of variance to work in their favor. Seattle ranks 12th in overall pace of play at 28.2 seconds per play and ranked 10th in pass rate over expectation under offensive coordinator Shane Waldron, a slight departure from previous seasons. As we've covered throughout the season, the Seahawks prefer to utilize elevated rates of 12 personnel via Noah Fant, Colby Parkinson, and Will Disley, only increasing their 11 personnel rates should the game environment dictate a more pass-heavy approach. What has been most different in 2023 when compared to previous seasons is the offense's tendency to lean fully into the pass if the matchup suggests that to be the easiest way to move the ball. In other words, the Seahawks are actively looking to exploit the matchup presented by their opponents as opposed to previous seasons where they simply attempted to do one thing really, really well, run the football, as evidenced by their extreme pass rate over expectation last week against the Browns. Week 8 marked the first game this season where rookie running back Zach Charbonnet, 59%, percent outsnapped incumbent lead back Kenneth Walker, 41%. Even so, Walker saw 10 running back opportunities to just 7 for Charbonnet, likely influenced by their most pass-heavy game plan this season against the Browns. This comes a week after Walker saw 29 running back opportunities against the hapless Cardinals with Charbonnet out of the lineup, meaning it isn't enough data to call a trend just yet it's much more likely that the pass-heavy game plan against a tough opponent tilted the snaps a bit more in favor of the rookie. Even so, that discussion bears meaning against a Ravens defense that ranks 5th in DVOA against the run, but first against the pass, allowing 4.1 yards per carry and 1.35 yards before contact, compared to an elite 4.2 net yards per attempt through the air. If we view Waldron as the offensive mind that will tailor his game plan to the opponent, we should expect a more run-balanced attack in this spot. To me, that is likely to lead to Walker as the primary backfield body after a week of sparse usage. Even with the Ravens better attacked on the ground, this is still a defense allowing the fewest points per game at 15.1 and just three rushing scores this season. Considering run balanced as the likeliest path of attack, we should expect inflated rates of 12 personnel from the Seahawks based on previous tendencies. That should serve to limit the snap rates of all primary pass catchers, most notably rookie slot man Jackson Smith and Jigba. The obvious caveat with that statement is the uncertainty surrounding the game day statuses of Tyler Lockett, improving practice trend, and DK Metcalf, who has a troubling practice trend. Furthermore, the team elected to make a one-for-one swap to Jake Bobo on the perimeter as opposed to drastically increasing JSN's involvement in the offense when Metcalf missed Week 7. The Ravens have run top 10 rates of man coverage this season as their secondary has enjoyed relative health after three years of terrible injury variance. Against which Metcalf leads the team in targets per route run rate by a wide margin an elite 37.5%. That said, neither of the team's primary options jump off the page from an efficiency standpoint against man this season with Metcalf putting up 0.52 fantasy points per route run against man ranked 25th and Lockett managing just 0.44 fantasy points per route run against man good for 35th per PFF. Last week against the man-heavy Browns, Lockett led the team in receiving while going 8 for 81 and 1 on 9 targets, while Metcalf managed an inefficient 5 for 67 and 0 line on 14 targets. So while they have combined to account for a 62.2% team target market share against heavy man utilization, their combined efficiency proved the modest marks through half the season against man. How Baltimore will try to win Even with the change in offensive coordinator, the Ravens continue to operate a slow offense, 29th-ranked, 29.8 seconds per play. The glaring difference in offensive identity for this team in 2023 is a more pass-balanced approach, likely resultant from the OC change and the fact that the team lost its lead back after just one game. One similarity to Baltimore offenses of the past is a heavy emphasis on 12 personnel via fullback Patrick Richard, who has played between 32% and 54% of the offensive snaps in all but one game this season. That has left only Zay Flowers and Mark Andrews as near-every-down pass catchers, with Nelson Aguilar, Rashad Bateman, Odell Beckham Jr., and Isaiah Likely in situational roles. One interesting nugget from the team's week of pressers was remarks from quarterback Lamar Jackson, saying that the team needed to get Bateman more involved in his downfield role which honestly makes a lot of sense considering Jackson's modest 7.8 intended air yards per pass attempt value and 19th ranked 1,767 total air yards this season. The Ravens rank near the middle of the pack in plays per game, 63.4, and 31st in pass attempts per game, 28.5, reinforcing the emphasis on methodical drives. 12th ranked time of possession at 31 minutes 14 seconds. Gus Edwards took over the primary between the tackles role after J.K. Dobbins was lost for the season but he has just two games of more than a modest 52% snap rate through eight games played. As we saw last week, that can still lead to some eruption games in the right matchup. That said, this week is probably not one of those spots. The Seahawks have held opponents to just 3.6 yards per carry behind 1.23 yards before contact this season, ranking third and second in those metrics respectively. They have, however, allowed seven rushing scores through seven games played, which is honestly more of a boost to Lamar Jackson's expectations than it would be for Edwards. While the Ravens rank second in rush attempts per game at 32.4, Lamar Jackson has accounted for 9.3 carries per game and 20 total red zone carries this season. As such, it appears more likely we see a game plan similar to the one this team utilized against the Lions in Week 7, 27 pass attempts and 27 rush attempts, with Jackson accounting for nine rush attempts and a score on the ground, than the run-heavy approach they took against the Cardinals in Week 8. Zay Flowers operated as a true every-down wide receiver with Odell Beckham and Rashad Bateman banged up between Week 3 and Week 6 before returning to a non-elite 70-75% snap rate the following two games. It's been a similar story for Mark Andrews, who has been held to below 80% snap rates in four of seven games this season. The Seahawks run the highest rate of zone coverage in the league at 87.6%, against which only Flowers and Andrews garner targets per route run rates higher than a modest 15.7%. And while Flowers and Andrews carry modest snap rates, they have each been in a route on 100% of the team's called pass plays this season, leaving the field only on designed run plays. Furthermore, the two have combined to garner an absurd 703 red zone target market share. The low expected pass volume is a concern, but chances are good that it'll be Andrews and or Flowers as the conduits to production when the offense does turn to the air, particularly considering the defensive tendencies exhibited by the Seahawks. Likeliest Game Flow The Seahawks have become more opponent-specific in their offensive game plans this season, which should force them into a run-balanced approach to begin the game. Furthermore, their play-it-close, win-it-in-the-fourth-quarter mentality makes it so we shouldn't expect extreme rates of passing unless they are forced to do so earlier in the game. On the other side, the Ravens have shown a propensity to wear down opponents over time on offense through long, sustained drives and a methodical approach that leads to a likeliest scenario where these two teams play to a tightly contested battle during the first three quarters, serving to mute the overall expected game environment in the process. And while each offense is relatively concentrated neither team utilizes a tight grouping of offensive personnel. In other words, snap rates are an issue for both teams. As such, nothing truly jumps off the page from this spot behind a game environment unlikely to truly take off. Cardinals at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, November 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 37 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo Clayton Toon is expected to draw the start for the Cardinals, with Kyler Murray not yet ready and Josh Dobbs traded to the Vikings. David Njoku picked up an ankle injury in Week 8 and did not practice on Wednesday. Kyler Murray was a full participant in practice on Wednesday and Thursday, but is reportedly going to require another week before he draws the start for the Cardinals. Deshaun Watson was limited Wednesday and Thursday, as he works his shoulder back into game shape. Dorian Thompson-Robinson was second in line for quarterback snaps behind Watson in Thursday's practice but the team still lists P.J. Walker as the direct backup. Donovan Peoples-Jones was dealt at the deadline. James Conner is in the final week of his IR stint, meaning another week of Amari DeMarcado and Keontae Ingram leading the backfield. How Arizona will try to win. The Cardinals have been reduced to a shell of the roster that started the season, and they already enter Week 9 with the worst record in the league. Furthermore, the schematic mastery that had suppressed offensive production against them during the first month of the season has fully worn off with teams able to move the football seemingly at will of late. The Cardinals are all the way down at 26th in the league in total offense allowed, 355.8 yards per game, and have allowed 26.6 points per game through 8 weeks, ranked 27th. They have played with pace, the 4th ranked 27.2 seconds per play, and have the highest rush rate in the league over expectation. Expect more of the same for as long as they are able considering the rookie quarterback and difficult matchup. Amari Demercato split time with Keontae Ingram in the first game without Connor. Took on an elite workload in the second game without Connor, an 80% snap rate, and then settled back into a typical lead back snap rate in the third game without Connor at 55%. Demarcato is clearly the leader of the backfield in the absence of Connor, but carries a wide range of outcomes as far as how involved we expect him to be and the matchup is far from ideal against a Cleveland defense allowing 4.0 yards per carry and seeding just 1.21 yards before contact this season. De Mercado is not a zero in the pass game, but he has more than one target in just one game of the previous three played without Connor. This is a fairly imposing spot, any way you slice it. The Cardinals shifted to a heavier rate of 11 personnel in their first game without tight end Zach Ertz in Week 8, which could also be attributable to the negative game environment they encountered, against a solid Ravens team. Second-year tight end Trey McBride saw a solid 82% snap rate in that game, joining Marquise Brown and Michael Wilson as near-every-down pass catchers. Rondale Moore continues to play almost exclusively from the slot in a short area role, while Greg Dortch was inactive for the first time this season in Week 8. That left Zach Pascal, Elijah Higgins, and Andre Baselia to split the remaining crumbs of leftover snaps amongst the pass catchers. The Browns play the highest rate of man coverage alignments on defense this season, at 46.5%, against which only Brown carries a targets per route run rate over just 14% this season, at 33.9%. Per PFF, Brown ranks 7th in fantasy points per route run, .72, against man coverage and holds the 6th highest receiving grade against that primary coverage, 89.2. Wilson has performed well against Zone this season, but carries a putrid 3.8% target rate against man. How Cleveland will try to win. The Browns have been able to control most of their games this season with their defense, a unit allowing just 19.9 points and the fewest total yards, 260, per contest. That said, they have allowed their last three opponents, the 49ers, Colts, and Seahawks, to amass 344.3 yards per game as the league seems to have begun to figure out their man-heavy and blitz-heavy defense. For comparison, 344.3 yards per game would rank 25th in the league if extrapolated to the whole season. Yeah, nonsensical extrapolation alert, but take it at face value as a pure comparison of recent performance. Cleveland has been in the top five in RROE for most of the year, leading the league in rush attempts per game at 34, Regardless of who is under center for the Browns in Week 9, expect them to lean on the ground game and their defense for as long as they are able, which should serve to mute the overall game environment here. Jerome Ford went into Week 8 with a questionable designation after picking up an ankle injury in Week 7. Kareem Hunt started last week's game and served as the lead back through the first half, backed up by Pierre Strong in a change-of-pace role. Ford then either made a miraculous recovery at the break or pulled a Monty Python, I'm not dead yet, because he was the featured back in the second frame. The confusing utilization of backs led to all three seeing 10 or more running back opportunities in Week 8. It takes a bit of faith, but I see Ford as the lead back if healthy enough, likely backed up by Hunt in the change of pace and goal line role, and strong as the semi-emergency back. Either way, there are significant ambiguities with this situation that led to a rather wide range of outcomes for all parties. The matchup on the ground is one of the biggest mismatches of the week against a Cardinals defense allowing 4.4 yards per carry and 11 rushing scores through 8 games played. The Browns have utilized near league average rates of 11 and 12 personnel, which has kept Amari Cooper, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Elijah Moore, and David Njoku in what are close to every down rolls. The team dealt DPJ at the trade deadline, leaving rookie wide receiver Cedric Tillman as the player most likely to enter the starting lineup in his place. He is the player whose skill set most directly aligns with the departing People's Jones, but Marquise Goodwin is also on hand to work a downfield role should the team choose to go that route. Goodwin is one of the fastest players in the league and has been utilized in a downfield role in previous stops throughout his career, so the safe bet could be to use Godwin in the vertical role. Either way, Cooper, Moore, and Njoku, assuming he is active after a DNP on Wednesday, are the only pass catchers we can have confidence in to play heavy snap rates. The Cardinals blitz at below average rates and have generated pressure at the third lowest rate in the league this season, which should provide Cleveland pass catchers the time to let their routes develop fully. Arizona has forced a middling 7.6-yard defensive ADOT this season, induced via the seventh highest zone utilization. Cooper leads the team in targets per route run rate at 22.2% and fantasy points per route run rate at .33 against zone coverage this season, but both marks rank outside the top 50 at the position against that primary coverage. Likeliest game flow. It is likely we see the Browns assert control over this game in short order, particularly considering the fact that we can expect a rookie quarterback to draw his first NFL start for the Cardinals. Both teams want to control the game on the ground for as long as possible, with the Browns set up well to do so and the Cardinals likely to be forced to a more aggressive aerial stance as the game moves on. That should return a rather muted game environment and additional opportunities for the Cleveland defense to apply pressure in the backfield as the game progresses with increased opportunities for the Cleveland backfield to rack up volume throughout. There isn't anything that jumps off the page considering the confusing timeshare in the Browns' backfield, but this could be a situation to leverage a bit of that uncertainty if ownership remains held in check due to the ambiguities. The lone Cardinal worthy of consideration at what is highly likely to be minuscule ownership is Hollywood Brown, who has run nuts against man coverage this season.
1: Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level.
0: Rams at Packers. Kickoff Sunday, November 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 38.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Rams quarterback Matthew Stafford suffered a UCL injury to his throwing thumb in Week 8 and did not practice to start the week. I am no expert on UCL injuries, so I'll have to defer to actual doctors here. Most Twitter docs, I know, have Stafford as likely out until week 11. The Rams tried to sign John Wolford off the Buccaneers practice squad, who then turned them down and was signed to the active roster in Tampa Bay. That whole situation was practice squad comic gold. Los Angeles then signed some dude named Dresser Wynn because the only other quarterback on the roster or practice squad was backup Brett Ripon. The Rams did sign running back Daryl Henderson to the active roster after two straight games as a game-day call-up. The Packers had just five players limited in practice on Wednesday and nobody listed as DNP, but are still struggling with injuries on the defensive side of the ball, with Darnell Savage and Eric Stokes on injured reserve. How Los Angeles will try to win. The Rams rank near middle of the pack in seconds per play at 28.4, but we know them to be a team that would prefer to play slow and methodical. They started the season in the top 10 in pass rate over expectation, but three consecutive strong rush rate over expectation showings against the Cardinals, Steelers, and Cowboys have them near middle of the pack. Considering the matchup, the state of the team, and the status of quarterback Matthew Stafford, I think it's likely we see a third straight game with an emphasis on the ground game against a Packers team that has struggled with opposing rushing attacks under defensive coordinator Joe Barry. Brett Ripon has three starts in his professional career, all of which came as a member of the Broncos. Last season, he had two touchdown passes, four interceptions, and fumbles, one lost, in four appearances, two of which were starts. At minimum, Kyron Williams will miss another two games, which leaves the backfield in the hands of Daryl Henderson, who was signed to the active roster this week, and Royce Freeman. Miles Gaskin was active in Week 8 for the first time as a member of the Rams, but didn't see any offensive snaps. Freeman has been a better back from an efficiency standpoint, running laps around Henderson the Plotter, I'm pretty sure he dressed up as a Viking for Halloween, and took over the backfield opportunities in the second half of the team's week 8 loss to the Cowboys. The Rams were down 33-9 at the half, so that could be a case of getting the better pass catching back on the field due to game environment, but Henderson is a fine pass blocker in his own right, which made the usage confusing to me. Either way, both backs shared the field in a near-even split after Henderson saw almost 60% of the offensive snaps in week 7. I would expect the Rams to start the game with Henderson in the bruiser role while Freeman handles the change of pace role and obvious passing downs, with the situation fluidly dependent on game environment. The matchup is mostly a net positive on paper, Rams 6th and run DVOA against the Packers 24th ranked run DVOA, middling 1.32 net yards before contact, 4.1 yards per attempt for the Packers, which should allow the Rams to continue trying to eat up clock and field position through sustained and methodical drives. The Rams primarily run from 11 personnel, with Puka Nakua, Cooper Cup, Tutu Atwell, and Tyler Higbee all in near-every down roles. Atwell and Higbee have combined to see just 20 targets over the previous three games, with a single-game high of just seven looks, leaving the bulk of the passing usage for Cup and Puka, injury attorneys at law. Both players have also been the primary pass catchers for the Rams against zone coverage, which the Packers run at the sixth-highest rate in the league. Surprisingly enough, Puka holds the highest targets per route run rate for the Rams against zone coverage this season at 30% to 23.7% for Cup and a laughable 15.2% for Tutu. The prevent nature of the Green Bay defense should lend itself well for the Rams to find success moving the ball through short to intermediate passing to Cup and Puka. The quarterback situation means drives will likely have to be strung together instead of many deep shots. On that note, the Packers rank ninth in the league in yak allowed due to their soft coverages and have forced opponents to a shallow 6.2 dot. That said, nothing in this matchup should prevent Puka and Cup from seeing solid efficiency in this spot. How Green Bay will try to win. As we covered in-depth on the Slate podcast last week, the Packers have been a veritable disaster this season. Many point to Jordan Love as the primary reason, but I place the blame squarely on the head coach, Matt LaFleur. If we break down an NFL game into the different areas as they relate to preparation, the first quarter and a half would be the game plan section, the next quarter and a half would be the game management section, where coaches make their adjustments, and the final quarter is the desperation section. The Green Bay Packers went into week 8 having scored just 24 points in the first half and managed to score just 3 points in the first half of their game against the Vikings. 27 points in the first half through 7 games played is not a quarterback problem. That, my friends, is a coaching problem. Yes, Love has not been great, or good even, and the Packers have struggled through numerous injuries to key players on the offensive side of the ball, but these are all things that the coaching staff know as they draw up their game plan for the coming week. Said again, for dramatic emphasis, the Packers average 3.86 points per first half through seven games played. Lafleur can only hide behind the, well I don't know if Jordan Love is the future in Green Bay excuse for so long. Because the offense has been so poor in the first half this season, it's difficult to read too much into their offensive design through the first half of the season, aside from pointing to a typically slow pace of play under LeFleur's tutelage and pass rate over expectation values that have historically been around league average. The backfield has also been unfortunate, considering the injury troubles of the aging Aaron Jones, who has played just one game that he started and finished this season, Week 8. He left the team's Week 1 contest in the third quarter with a hamstring injury, returned in Week 4 only to aggravate the injury, then returned again in Week 7 to a modest 36% snap rate. It wasn't until Week 8 that he worked his way back into an even split in the backfield, which could theoretically increase now that he appears fully healthy for the first time since preseason. That's important because one of the most inefficient backs in the league has been thrust into the featured role out of the backfield for Green Bay up to this point in the season. AJ Dillon's 3.1 yards per carry ranks 59th. His 3.9 yards per touch ranks 48th. His 14.7% juke rate ranks 41st. He has 1 one breakaway run through 7 games, good for a 48th ranked 1.2% breakaway run rate, and he has a 21.2% stuffed run rate on the back of the 15th most stuffed runs this season. The Green Bay offensive line has also not done these backs any favors, blocking to just 1.28 yards before contact. They are great in pass protection, though, blocking to just a 22% pressure rate allowed. The matchup yields a poor 1.31 yards before contact against a Rams defense holding opponents to 4.1 yards per carry. Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, and Luke Musgrave are the only Green Bay pass catchers to see steady near-every-down rolls in this offense, while Jalen Reed, Jones, Dylan, and Josiah Degara have fluid rolls dependent on game environment. The Packers have preferred to run from 12 personnel at elevated rates in neutral to positive game script, while more or less being forced into heavier rates of 11 personnel when playing from behind, which, in case you haven't noticed, has been quite frequent this season. As we've discussed, Jordan Love has been a near-average quarterback when kept clean, and one of the worst quarterbacks in the league when under pressure. The good news is that the Packers' offensive line has been one of the best units in the league in pass protection, and the Rams have generated pressure at a well below average 18.7% clip this season. Los Angeles has also faced the fifth deepest defensive A-dot this year, which aligns with how we'd expect Green Bay to attack them through the air. Love holds the league's deepest intended air yards per pass attempt, so it's typically of the downfield variety when they pass. The Vikings were able to restrict the downfield nature of this pass offense in Week 8, but they did so via intricate blitz packages and pressure in the backfield, something Raheem Morris is far less likely to do in this spot. Likeliest Game Flow Nothing from last week to this week should change drastically for the Packers, considering they came out of their bye week and put up a combined three points in the first half against the Broncos and the Vikings. In other words, nothing is pointing to anything changing from a game planning perspective, considering we've seen the early game struggles continue beyond the team's bye week against two defenses that are non elite. Yes, the Broncos are probably better than they performed to start the season, and the Vikings have been burned at times if teams figure out how to attack, if teams figure out how to attack the soft spots behind their heavy blitz rates, but these are not elite defensive units. As such, it should be the Rams as the driving force behind this game environment, at least in the first half. That is not the best news, considering they will likely be playing with either a starting quarterback who could have trouble gripping the football, again I see Stafford is highly unlikely to play this week, or a backup quarterback with minimal NFL action to his name. That should return a rather muted overall game environment here, with neither team likely to go out of their way to dial up the aggression in this particular spot. Below average total number of plays, slow pace of play, methodical drives, and few chances of scoring are likely here. Buccaneers at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, November 5th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 40. Game Overview by Hilo. The two most important players to the Buccaneers' offensive and defensive line returned to full practices on Thursday, Tristan Wirfs and Vita Vea. Texans running back Damian Pierce and wide receiver Robert Woods have yet to practice this week as of Thursday. Offensive tackle Laramie Tunsell returned to a limited session Thursday after missing Wednesday's practice. Nico Collins and Tank Dell are once again set up well in this spot. Both teams present a pass-funnel matchup as far as the on-paper matchups are concerned. How Tampa Bay will try to win. The Buccaneers have played with moderate pace, 11th ranked 28.1 seconds per play, and find themselves in the top half of the league in pass rate over expectation, averaging a slightly below average 61.1 plays per game and a slightly above average 35.3 pass attempts per game. The 3-4 bucks have dropped three in a row to the Lions, Falcons, and Bills after starting the season 3-1, and, and have already had their bye, but play in one of the worst divisions in the league, leaving them just a half game back from the Falcons and Saints for the division lead. During this three-game downturn, they have averaged just 12.33 points per game, placing them near the bottom of the league in scoring for the season at 17.3 points per game, which is good for 27th. Expect a pass-balanced approach to start based on previous tendencies against an opponent that presents slight pass-funnel tendencies while utilizing zone coverages at a top 10 rate. Rashad White has become a true workhorse running back this season, handling the 5th highest snap rate share, 77.5%, and 10th highest opportunity share, 70.5%. His yards per carry stand at a putrid 3.3, good for 53rd, while his yards per touch is a non-elite 4.4. So it hasn't been pretty, but the volume has been there with 13.1 carries and 4.3 targets per game, similar workload to DeAndre Swift in Philadelphia. The matchup is far from ideal against the Texans defense holding opponents to 3.6 yards per carry and 1.2 yards before contact, so expect another game of muted efficiency and tough sledding on the ground. Chase Edmonds was active in Week 8 for the first time since Week 2 and immediately usurped Keyshawn Vaughn for the change of pace role which likely speaks more to Vaughn's inability to lock down the role than it does to Edmonds' abilities on the field. What that should serve to do is strengthen White's hold on the workhorse role. The Buccaneers play almost exclusively from 11 personnel on offense, with Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, and Kate Otten near every down pass catchers, and rookie wide receiver Trey Palmer working his way into an 80% plus role. Devin Tompkins and Rakeem Jarrett are on hand for situational roles, each primarily held to under 30% of the offensive snaps. The Texans are in zone coverages at the 8th highest rate this season, against which Evans and Godwin are the two primary contributors. Actually, those two are the primary contributors against all coverages, with Evans leading the way with a 25.9% targets per route run rate, 23.3% team target market share, and a healthy 13.3A dot. Evans is ranked in the top 10 in fantasy points per route run against both man and zone this season, while Godwin ranks 8th in fantasy points per route run against man, but 51st against zone. The matchup sets up well for Evans to once again be the clear and away top option. Palmer has a modest 9.3% targets per route run rate against zone coverages, while Otten holds modest marks in target market share, 12.3%, targets per route run rate, 12.2%, and ADOT, 5.8. How Houston will try to win. The Texans have played with pace, 8th ranked 27.6 seconds per play, but have otherwise been subject to game environment to dictate their aggression, holding the league's 10th highest rush rate over expectation, a 14th ranked 64.3 plays per game mark, and 18th ranked 34 pass attempts per game. That said, Bobby Slovic remains one of the most forward-leaning offensive play callers in the league. The matchup very clearly points to the air against the pass-funnel Buccaneers defense, and lead back Damian Pierce appears unlikely to play this week. From a game-planning perspective, all signs on paper point to a slightly more aerial-based attack in this spot. The biggest drawback to that assumption is a team that has very clear tendencies of shifting to a more run-balanced attack in game environments they can control, which provides slight risk in the assumption. Assuming Pierce misses this game with his ankle injury, Devin Singletary is in line to see his highest snap rate and usage of the season, likely to be backed up by Mike Boone in a change-of-pace role. Singletary's efficiency metrics have been fairly shaky through seven games, holding a 3.7 yards per carry and 4.0 yards per touch, both of which rank outside the top 40 at the position. The Houston offensive line has been a legitimate liability, generating just 1.15 yards before contact, which is fourth worst, leading to just 3.3 running back yards per carry this season. Furthermore, All-Pro nose tackle Vita Vea appears likely to return in Week 9 after missing the previous contest placing further constraints on any upside that could be present through volume alone. The fun for the Texans starts when looking at their pass game, as Nico Collins and Tank Dell are in the midst of true breakout seasons. The biggest limiting factor for all Houston pass catchers is relatively modest snap rates and route participation rates across the board, with it being standard practice for no pass catcher to play more than 80% of the offensive snaps in a given game and route participation rates that rank outside the top 60 wide receivers. Even so, Collins and Dell both rank in the top 10 in fantasy points per route run against man coverage amongst qualifying wide receivers, with Collins also 18th in fantasy points per route run against zone coverage, and Dell a respectable 38 in that split. The Buccaneers run league average rates of man and zone coverage, blitz at elevated rates, 36.6% blitz rate ranks 5th in the league, but generate pressure at a below average 18.8% clip, which is 7th lowest in the league. The added time in the pocket should do wonders for C.J. Stroud, considering his stark splits when kept clean versus when under pressure. Stroud ranks 11th in passing rating when kept clean, but 33rd in passing rating when under pressure of qualified quarterbacks. Noah Brown stepped into a 72% snap rate after the injury to Robert Woods, the latter of whom appears unlikely to play in Week 9 after missing practice through Thursday. Dalton Schultz serves as the primary tight end, but has not played more than 78% of the offensive snaps since Week 1. Likeliest Game Flow Even though these two defenses clearly tilt expected production through the air, neither team is overly likely to push the game environment into something that could be in the upper echelon of games this week. The Texans have scored more than twenty-eight points just twice this season, while the Buccaneers have yet to do so, meaning we're likeliest to get a hard fought struggle between two teams looking to save their seasons. Even so, both pass offenses are fairly concentrated, with Evans leading the way for the Bucks and Nico Collins and Tank Dell leading the way for the Texans meaning solid individual fantasy production can develop in this spot. I'll be far less interested in game stacks than I am in those three players
1: as potential floating plays from this one. The Commanders at the Patriots kick off Sunday, November 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Pappy This game features one of the highest tempo teams in the league, Patriots, and one of the pass-heaviest teams in the league, Commanders. No one on either side of the ball is priced above 6000 on DraftKings. foot 6th-round rookie Demario Douglas is currently projected to serve as the Patriots' number one wide receiver. The Commanders traded away defensive ends Montez Sweat and Chase Young, primarily hurting their pass rush, but their run defense as well. The Commander's passing game has been boom or bust this year, creating a wide range of DFS outcomes for this game. The most likely scenario is a low-scoring game with a lot of inefficient plays, but it is possible this game becomes more exciting than the total would indicate. How Washington Will Try to Win the 3-5 commanders limp into Week 9 fresh off division losses against the Eagles and Giants. Ron Rivera's team started the season with two wins, but has gone 1-5 since, only beating the Falcons in a close game. The mood of management was on display this week when they traded two former first-round picks in Sweat and Young. The commanders are still publicly saying they care about this season, but freeing cap space, 90 million available and stockpiling draft picks, three in the top 50, tips their hand that 2023 has become a throwaway season. The commanders' management might not be trying to win, but the coaching staff's jobs are always on the line, which means you can bet Ron Rivera will still be trying to keep his team believing that this year matters. The commanders quietly have the highest pass play rate in the league, 72%, under new offensive coordinator Eric Biennemi. They have the second highest pass rate over expectation, only a tick behind the Chiefs. The Commanders are throwing because passing is their new offensive philosophy, not because they are typically chasing points in negative game scripts. The Commanders' O-line hasn't been great this year, 19th ranked unit per PFF, but they got back guard Chris Paul, no not that one, and center Tyler Larson last week against the Eagles. They did a relatively good job against Philly's fierce rush, only allowing 14 pressures on 55 dropbacks. There is reason to believe the commander's O-line is trending up as a pass-protecting unit. The Patriots' defense has been good against the run, 7th in DVOA, but has seen its pass defense, 18th in DVOA, slip after losing star rookie cornerback Christian Gonzalez. The Patriots prefer to lean on man coverage, which makes losing a shut-down corner hurt even more. The Commanders were going to pass anyway, but the Patriots being weaker through the air sets up perfectly for another pass-heavy game plan. Expect Biennemi to stick with what he knows, which is slinging the rock all over the field. How New England will try to win. Once feared, Bill Belichick's 2-6 Patriots crawl into Week 9 having scored the fewest points... 118, and sporting the worst point differential, negative 90, in the AFC. The only team worse in both metrics is the hapless Giants. These are not your father's patriots. New England looks lost on offense. They're 24th in the league in PROE, but 13th in pass rate, which shows they want to run, but are constantly chasing points. Their O-line has been one of their worst during Belichick's tenure. They've been bad overall, 23rd ranked unit per PFF, and even their best player, Trent Brown, gave up pressure on 12.1% of pass plays last week. Bill O'Brien always felt like a familiar face rather than an answer at offensive coordinator. How long will it take before Josh McDaniels is back in town after his latest failed attempt at coaching without Tom Brady? The truth is, it's not going to matter who is calling the plays. There has never been anything special about McDaniels, O'Brien, Belichick, or any other failed Patriots assistant coach. Charlie Weiss, Romeo Cronell, I'm looking at you. There has only ever been something special about Brady. The commanders have been solid against the run, 6th in DVOA, but lit on fire through the air, 30th in DVOA. The Commanders have been one of the biggest pass funnels in the league. Even though the loss of Sweat and Young will weaken their run defense, it should still be considered above average. The departure of Sweat-Young will be really felt in the pass rush, which should make their back end even more vulnerable. The Patriots' pass offense hasn't been good, and their wide receiver room just lost their best player for the season, Kendrick Bourne, further making this a weakness-on-weakness matchup. One area the Patriots have been consistent in is pace. They've played at warp speed, second fastest pace overall, and have been notably quicker at home, playing at the fastest speed in the league inside Gillette Stadium. Expect the Patriots to come out with tempo while still having enough know-how on their coaching staff to lean more pass-heavy than usual. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a lowish total, 40.5, with the Patriots installed as moderate, negative 3.5 home favorites. This is a weakness-on-weakness matchup when the Pats have the ball. The Patriots' offense has been poor in all metrics and just lost their best wide receiver for the year. The Commander's defense has been decimated through the air and just traded away two of its best players. The Commander's offense has been more middle-of-the-road than bad, but they get the Pats' defense, which has also been respectable. This type of setup creates a game where the most likely outcome is both offenses struggle. The pats because they aren't very good, and the commanders because they're on the road in a difficult matchup. The most likely outcome is a low-scoring, mistake-filled game that is determined by who manages not to lose the game. It's worth noting that weakness-on-weakness matchups have a lot of variance. There is a chance the Pats' offense finds success, which feeds into the already extreme pass-leading commander's playstyle, and this game ends up going substantially over its total. That outcome is certainly possible, but it is not the most likely scenario. The Bears at the Saints kick off Sunday, November 5th at 1pm Eastern with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Hilo The Bears held a Wednesday walkthrough after playing Sunday Night Football in Week 8. On Wednesday, Justin Fields remained a DNP on the team's projected injury report. The Saints are relatively healthy at the moment, with just linebacker Ty Summers and wide receiver Lynn Bowden Jr. listed as DNP Wednesday, neither of whom are starters. Chicago, somewhat confusingly, dealt a second-round pick to the Commanders for defensive end Montez Sweat at the trade deadline Tuesday. Both teams averaged a middling 21.4 points per game this year. How Chicago will try to win? The Bears have to be playing for the future at this point, particularly considering they currently have a greater than 50% chance to have two of the top five picks in the 2024 NFL Draft. That makes the recent trade with the commanders for defensive end Montez Sweat that much more confusing, made even more head-scratching by the post-trade reports that the Bears didn't have a solid plan in place to extend the elite pass rusher after his contract expires at the end of the 2023 season. Either way, Chicago currently sits at a 2-6 record, one game ahead of the NFL-worst Cardinals and .5 games ahead of the Panthers. Chicago owns Carolina's 2024 first. As for how this team is built this year, things haven't been as terrible as their record would lead you to believe. Matt Eberflus took over defensive play calling this offseason, and has this team performing extremely well against the run. If I told you that the Bears currently lead the league in yards allowed per rush, and have surrendered just four rushing scores all season, you'd likely call me a liar, before checking for yourself and getting owned. They have, however, been absolutely gashed through the air to the tune of a 6.9 net yards per pass attempt value, third worst, and the second most touchdowns allowed, likely hamstrung by an inability to generate pressure in the backfield, second lowest pressure rate this season at 16.6%, ahead of only the Broncos, and that comes with a slightly above average 24.5% blitz rate. From a top-level offensive perspective, the Bears play with a modest pace, 19th-ranked 28.7 seconds per play, with extreme rush rates, third-highest rush rate over expectation. Poor offensive efficiency has held the Bears to 62.9 plays per game, which has, in turn, kept their rushes per game to 29.1. A season after leading the league with 5.4 yards per rush attempt, the Bears rank fifth at 4.6 behind an offensive line blocking to 1.57 yards before contact, third best in the league. Rookie quarterback Tyson Bagant has just seven carries through two starts, leaving a larger share of the rush attempts to the backfield compared to starts with Justin Fields under center. Even so, the return to the lineup of rookie running back Rashan Johnson forced a three-way split in the backfield in Week Eight, reducing Deonta Foreman's snap rate to just 32 percent. Veteran journeyman Darrington Evans has seen between 27 and 48 percent snap rates since Khalil Herbert was placed on injured reserve. The matchup on the ground is far from ideal against a New Orleans defense holding opponents to just 1.19 yards before contact, 4.3 yards per carry, and just four rushing scores through the first half of the season. The Bears have utilized 12 personnel at a slightly above average 29% since Herbert went down with an injury in Week 5, with Cole Komet playing a near-every-down role and Robert Tonyan mixing in with Mercedes Lewis in a shared role. D.J. Moore and Darnell Mooney operate as near-every-down wide receivers, with rookie Tyler Scott stepping into a standard slot snap rate of around 60% during the most recent three-game stretch. The Bears average 30.3 pass attempts per game on the season, 28th in the league, which has increased slightly with bag and under center, to 33.0 over the previous two games. The Saints run man coverage at the fourth-highest rate in the league, 32.7% against which only Moore and Komet have an above-average receiving grade. Moore leads the team with a 20.3% targets-per-route run rate against man. Not exactly elite, but not terrible at the same time. How New Orleans will try to win. Derek Carr has been pressured on 34% of his dropbacks this season. His completion rate drops from 70.1% when kept clean to 50.6% when under pressure. He has an above-average 74.4 passing grade, PFF, when kept clean, versus a 48.8 grade under pressure. He's tossed seven of his eight touchdowns when kept clean. Carr is not immune to pressure in New Orleans, which is important in this matchup, against a team generating pressure at the second-lowest rate in the league, ahead of only Denver. Even though Carr has passed for 300 yards or more in four of eight games this season, He has multiple touchdown passes in just two games and has not yet thrown for three or more touchdowns in a game this season. Many of this team's struggles have come in the red zone, having scored a touchdown on just 42.86% of their red zone trips this season. That said, they broke out of that slump against the Colts in Week 7, scoring on 75% of their red zone trips on their way to their best offensive output of the season, 38 points scored. Overall, the Saints run an up-tempo offense, 6th-ranked, 27.3 seconds per play, with moderate pass rates, middle-of-pack pass rate over expectation, and a robust 38 pass attempts per game. Jamal Williams returned from injury two weeks ago to 22 and 23% snap rates in a subdued role in the offense. It is still unclear whether that is by design or necessity due to his extended absence but that role has minimal upside. Rookie Kendra Miller has played single-digit offensive snaps in every game where there were two healthy running backs active ahead of him on the depth chart this season, playing double-digit snaps only in games where two of Kamara, Williams, and Tony Jones, no longer with the team, missed. Tight end Taysom Hill's role in the offense has changed with the win this season, most heavily influenced by the available personnel and matchup. After five consecutive weeks of single digit fantasy returns, he has put up 12.3 DK points or more in three straight games. Finally, Alvin Kamara has settled into a tight workload in the past three games, with between 17 and 19 carries in each game and a pass game involvement that is most correlated to game environment seeing everything from three targets and a blowout win over the Patriots in Week 5 to 14 targets twice in losses to the pass-funnel defenses of the Jaguars and Buccaneers. As covered above, the pure rushing matchup is actually one of the worst on-paper matchups in the league against a Chicago defense more equipped to erase the run than they are to handle the pass. Derek Carr leads the league in intended air yards behind a solid 8.8 IAYPA, third deepest in the league. The biggest problem has been efficiency, as his CAYPA sits at a paltry 3.7. His on-target throw rate ranks just 22nd, 73.8%, and his poor throw rate ranks 6th, 18.8%, both of which are most heavily influenced by pressure. The Bears have been largely unable to generate pressure this season and play zone at a top-10 rate, which should filter most of the pass volume through Chris Olave and Rashid Shaheed, the two pass catchers who have performed the best against zone this season. Michael Thomas will be on the field as a primary pass catcher, but his targets per route run rate drops from 34.5% against man to 15.4% against zone this season. Rookie wide receiver A.T. Perry was active for the first time this season in Week 8, while tight end Juwan Johnson returned from a stint on injured reserve to a 61% snap rate after serving as the primary tight end to start the season, which held Shahid to just 27% of the offensive snaps in Week 8, his lowest of the season. He still caught all three targets for 153 yards and a score, but the reduction in snaps was stark to say the least. Finally, after two consecutive games of 50 pass attempts or more, Carr threw the football only 27 times in a game the team controlled throughout against the Colts a week ago. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest we see this game played to an inefficient field position battle unless one of two things happens. The Saints continue their newfound successes in the red zone, 75% red zone touchdown rate against the Colts, but a season-long average under 50% or the Bears push the Saints on the scoreboard. Neither scenario has a greater-than-average chance of coming to fruition, but would mark the only two ways this game environment delves into meaningful territory and fantasy land. In other words, eight pass catchers and three running backs saw snaps for the Saints in Week 8, with only Chris Olave, Michael Thomas, Foster Moreau, and Juwan Johnson seeing more than 60% of the offensive snaps while no player saw more than a 74% snap rate with the team now closer to healthy than they have been at any point in the season so far. A matchup against the worst red zone defense in the league, 78.26% red zone touchdown rate allowed, could lead to a clearer path to one of those outlier scenarios developing here, which would lead to a game environment where the Saints are allowed to manage the game through modest pass rates, defensive successes, and forcing the Bears to the air at inflated rates. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Colts at the Panthers. Kick off Sunday, November 5th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Indianapolis continues to be a part of explosive game environments due to an aggressive offensive scheme and play calling along with a subpar defense. Carolina finally won a game last week with a 15-13 victory in a pillow fight with the Texans. The Panthers' run defense is the worst in the league by most metrics and faces one of the top rushing attacks in the league this week. This game has the second highest over-under on the Week 9 main slate. The Panthers came out of their Week 7 bye and had their lowest attempt total of the season, but improved efficiency. How Indianapolis will try to win. The Colts have been a goldmine of fun and one of the lone bright spots in the NFL this year, as scoring has been down across the board and we have been subjected to a lot of boring and sloppy football through the first half of the season. First-year head coach Shane Stitchen has opened things up and is playing an aggressive brand of football while creating explosive plays in both the running game and the passing game. He hasn't pulled back since losing rookie quarterback Anthony Richardson, either, allowing Gardner Minshew to sling it. That offensive aggressiveness combined with a shaky defense has made Indianapolis games a viewer's delight, as six of their eight games have resulted in combined scores of more than 50 points. Their last three games had combined scores of 65, 77, and 57. Indianapolis ranks 30th in pass rate over expectation, but leads in pace of play. Their pass rate has also increased since Richardson left the lineup, as many of his designed run plays have turned into passes. The Colts also have two highly effective running backs in Jonathan Taylor and Zach Moss who have each provided explosive plays running behind PFF's number 4-ranked run-blocking offensive line. This week they have a matchup against the league's worst run defense in the Panthers. Carolina has been decimated on the ground by pretty much everyone, with the lone exception being last week against the Texans, whose running game futility found a way to outmatch the ineptitude of Carolina's run defense. Any team with a decent running game has simply had their way with the Panthers, and the Colts have the scheme and talent to shove the ball down their throats. The Panthers' pass defense isn't much to write home about either, and they especially have trouble from an efficiency standpoint against teams who are crushing them on the ground. Basically, they get hit so hard on the ground that they have no choice but to sell out and then get burned in the secondary. That recipe should fit right into the Colts' approach, as they will let Taylor and Moss take turns ripping off chunk runs and then let Minshew pick them apart on the back end. How Carolina will try to win. The first one is always the hardest. Or at least, that's how the saying goes. Carolina squeaked by the Texans in Week 8 for their first win of the Bryce Young-Frank Reich era. After an 0-6 start to the year that included four double-digit losses, Carolina seemed to improve and make some adjustments in their bye week. For starters, Bryce Young threw only 31 passes, his lowest total of the season. Part of that was definitely game script, as it was a low-scoring game and Carolina has been blown out a few times where they were forced to throw more than they probably wanted to. However, Young also had, by far, his most efficient performance of the season, as he set season highs in yards per attempt and QB rating. It was also his first game of the season without a turnover. In the backfield, the Panthers appear to be trusting the film and the stats as they relied on Chuba Hubbard as their lead running back despite the return of Miles Sanders. Hubbard has been the more explosive and effective back this season, but Sanders signed a big contract in the spring so it was not certain that they wouldn't go back to him. Sanders and Raheem Blackshear got some playing time, but Hubbard dominated the running back usage and appears to have taken control of the backfield. This week, Carolina gets their best matchup of the year with a home game against a Colts team that has given up an average of 38 points in their last three games while allowing at least 29 points in five of their eight games so far this season. Carolina, meanwhile, has yet to reach the 20-point threshold except in games where their opponents scored 37 or more points. Said another way, the Panthers' offense has not really been able to put up points except when they are being blown out. The Colts rank last in blitz rate and second in zone coverage rate. They are a very conservative unit that sits back in their soft zones and doesn't apply much pressure on the quarterback. The Colts also rank 26th in PFF coverage grade, as they have repeatedly been burned in the secondary over the course of the year. This is great news for Young, who has struggled at times with the speed of the game and when under pressure. He should have time in the pocket to be able to find holes in the Colts' secondary. Carolina ranks in the middle of the pack in PROE, but I would expect them to open things up a bit for Young in this matchup, where he should be more comfortable. The Colts scheme should be vulnerable to Adam Thielen in the short to intermediate areas of the field, and also could open up new downfield opportunities for the Panthers, as they rank 6th worse in explosive pass plays allowed. Carolina plays with a middling pace of play, and their play calling is not going to be overly aggressive. But they should come out of their shell a bit this week, playing at home with an opportunity to give their rookie quarterback some confidence. Likeliest Game Flow The Colts have been the lighter fluid on pretty much every game they've been a part of this season, and it will be interesting to see if they have that same effect on the struggling Panthers offense. Indianapolis is most likely to control this game and should have a lot of offensive success from the outset due to the great schematic matchup they are walking into. The Colts' defense appears to be poor enough that the Panthers should be able to score some points and push this game a bit from their side as well. Carolina is clearly a submissive team in terms of game environments, as they are more likely to have things dictated to them than to dictate terms to their opponent. The Colts are aggressive and explosive enough offensively that we should expect them to move the ball and put up points, and their defense has shown that it gives everyone a chance to maximize their offense. This game is likely to be one of the more fun matchups on the Week 9 slate as it appears to be the case that the Colts will fill that role on more weeks than not. The Giants at the Raiders kick off Sunday, November 5th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 37. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This game has the lowest implied total of the week. Giants quarterback Daniel Jones returns from a three-week absence due to a neck injury. Las Vegas enters this game with plenty of changes due to the departures of its head coach, offensive coordinator, and general manager. Rookie quarterback Aiden O'Connell will get his second career start after the team announced that they are benching Jimmy Garoppolo. The Raiders' pass rush could pose problems for a Giants offensive line that has struggled with pass blocking. How New York will try to win While everyone loves to pick apart teams and players on a one-week or recency basis, not nearly enough attention is paid to what is arguably one of the most important things to consider when evaluating. Who did you play? It sounds fairly obvious and straightforward, but too many times we get caught up in what we see and lose sight of why we're seeing it. The Giants were one of last year's feel-good stories in the NFL, beating most people's expectations and making it to the playoffs in head coach Brian DeBall's first year with the team. They even won a road playoff game, going into Minnesota and knocking off the Vikings. Expectations were high coming off that season, and the Giants have been disappointing, sitting with a 2-6 record through eight weeks. What happened to them? Has DeBall lost it? If you take the time to look deeper at the circumstances around both last year and this year, however, it is quite clear that who they played is a critical component in this harsh fall back to reality. In 2022, the Giants benefited from a very favorable schedule and had a lot of things break their way, including two wins in the last four weeks of the season against teams playing without their starting quarterback. Even their win over the Vikings was a bit misleading, as the Vikings were nowhere near as strong of a team as their record would have indicated. Flash forward to this year, and the Giants started the season with a 1-5 in record through six weeks, but their losses were against the Cowboys, 49ers, Seahawks, Dolphins, and Bills. All five of those teams are currently ranked in the top 10 of the NFL Power Rankings. The Giants also played three of those games without offensive centerpiece Saquon Barkley, The Giants then beat the Commanders with Tyrod Taylor under center before blowing an ugly game to the Jets in the rain last week when they were forced to play with a third-string quarterback, Tommy DeVito, and the team accumulated negative nine net passing yards over the course of the game. All this is to say that the Giants get Jones back this week, and this is the best combination of matchup and health they've had since week two. Their defense struggled early in the year, but it has given up only 34 points in the last three weeks, including holding Josh Allen and the Bills to their lowest point total of the year, 14. The Giants have played two full games this year with Jones and Barkley on the field. One was a decimation in the rain against the Cowboys on opening night, and the other was, ironically, a road game also in the desert against the Cardinals, where they had by far their best offensive performance of the year. As for how the Giants will approach this game, the simple answer is they will get back to being themselves. Barkley is their offensive centerpiece, and they will put Jones in manageable situations while allowing him to use his athleticism and looking to simplify his reads. The Giants may also be getting reinforcements on their offensive line, as starters Andrew Thomas and Evan Neal may be returning to the lineup. The Giants rank 29th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, but that number will likely rise this week as they finally have the core of their offense back together. Jones has never been a superstar talent or a quarterback who does well against elite defenses, but he has proven repeatedly that he can put up points against middling or poor defenses. Las Vegas ranks 29th in run defense DVOA and 20th in pass defense DVOA, and the Giants should have increased offensive success, especially if their linemen return. Barkley was given 41 opportunities last week, so clearly they think he's healthy. Look for Saquon to be the engine of this offense and Jones to open things up a bit, with the Giants having a chance to give us a glimpse of their 2022 form. How Las Vegas will try to win Of all the NFL edge games we've broken down over the years, there may not be a spot with more turnover than what the Raiders are dealing with this week. They are playing on a short week and fired their head coach, general manager, and offensive coordinator. They also benched Garoppolo, who likely won't even be active as they try to make sure he avoids an injury that would trigger a guarantee in his bloated contract for the next season. O'Connell will start this week, and former NFL linebacker Antonio Pierce will assume head coaching duties. Meanwhile, Adam Gacy disciple Bo Hardegree has been promoted from quarterback's coach to interim offensive coordinator and will call plays. Hardegree has never called plays before. Schematically, it is unlikely that much changes this week as the short preparation time and people being thrust into new roles makes it hard to make full-scale changes or install new concepts. Despite that, we can predict some things that the changes may lead to in terms of usage and approach. O'Connell started one game earlier this season against the Chargers and actually had a decent performance. Devontae Adams had a brief mid-game exit But O'Connell kept the Raiders in it, and they were, unsurprisingly, robbed of a chance to win or force overtime late, in large part due to game mismanagement by departed head coach Josh McDaniels. O'Connell led the NFL in average depth of target in the preseason while showing a willingness to push the ball downfield, and his ability to do so is almost certainly an upgrade on Garoppolo. As a rookie with a big arm, his focus will almost certainly be on feeding the ball to talented wide receivers Adams and Jacoby Myers. There has also reportedly been an edict handed down from ownership demanding that it be made a priority to get the ball in the hands of their high-investment playmakers. While Adams, Myers, and running back Josh Jacobs will certainly be featured, there is a good chance that rookie tight end Michael Mayer also sees a spike in usage, as he is clearly a centerpiece of the Raiders' future. The Raiders are very average in terms of both pass rate and pace of play but an uptick in passing and some more aggressive play calling could be in store as ownership gets what they want and the incumbents have nothing to lose. Honestly, after watching Monday night's debacle against the Lions, the offense has nowhere to go but up. Likeliest Game Flow When I started researching this game, I was expecting to be lulled to sleep, as the narrative around both teams and the product we've seen on the field has been so bad. After digging into both sides of the ball, however, this game is arguably the most interesting on the slate outside of the big NFC East matchup between Dallas and Philadelphia. There are just so many variables at play here that give this game hidden upside, and that make the 37-point implied total seem extremely low. The Giants' offense is the healthiest it has been all season, and in one of the best matchups they've had. They'll almost certainly be more aggressive and efficient than we've seen most of the year. The Raiders, meanwhile, have completely cleaned house of the people who steer the ship and have the biggest impact on their approach. All of the decision makers are gone, and the quarterback, the position with the most impact on the players around them in all of pro sports, has changed from a risk-averse veteran with limited arm strength to an aggressive youngster who is being given a nine-week audition to prove he should be the guy next year. The metrics and statistical analysis of these teams from the past eight weeks are largely out the window in this one and this has the potential to be the most surprising game of the main slate. The Cowboys at the Eagles kick off Sunday, November 5th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Eagles have looked dominant for most of this season, while the Cowboys have had some struggles, but a Dallas win here would have these teams tied up atop the NFC. Both teams have played a relatively modest strength of schedule, and this will be one of the toughest tests for both of them. Dallas finally opened up their play calling and were more aggressive through the air coming out of their Week 7 bye. Jalen Hurts had a season low in rushing attempts and yards in Week 8, as he continues to recover from an apparent minor knee injury. The ability of the Dallas offense to apply pressure on the Eagles will be key in determining the game script. How Dallas will try to win. The Cowboys came out of their Week 7 by throwing haymakers, jumping out to a 33-3 first-half lead over the Rams before coasting to a 43-20 victory. After a tumultuous first six weeks that featured an embarrassing 28-16 loss to the Cardinals and a humiliating 42-10 dominant performance by the 49ers, the Cowboys still entered their bye with a 4-2 record, thanks in large part to a relatively easy schedule. The list of starting quarterbacks the Cowboys have faced this season. Daniel Jones, win. Zach Wilson, win. Josh Dobbs, loss. Mac Jones, win. Brock Purdy, lost. Justin Herbert, win. Matthew Stafford, win, but he was injured mid-game. While quarterback play across the NFL is not necessarily at a high point, you can see how they have picked on some weak links en route to their current 5-2 record. Nonetheless, a win this week would put them on pace with the Eagles and continue to build off the momentum they created with last week's convincing win over the Rams. Head coach Mike McCarthy rightfully took a lot of heat for his conservative and run-heavy play calling to start the season, but came out of their Week 7 by firing. Dallas called 10 pass plays on their game-opening touchdown drive and continued to be aggressive throughout the first half, ending on a 5-play, 63-yard touchdown drive that was entirely composed of pass plays and gave the Cowboys a 33-3 lead. There were a few Rams turnovers and mishaps that helped lead to the game being out of hand so quickly, but the Dallas offense had a noticeably different feel to it than we had seen before their bye week. CeeDee Lamb was finally featured, and he responded with a career-best game, showing he can be the true alpha-wide receiver this team needs. This week's matchup with the Eagles and their top-ranked run defense points to another spot where Dallas should be leaning heavily on Dak Prescott. The Cowboys tried to be a run-first team to start the season, but entered Week 9 ranked 23rd in rushing offense DVOA. The Eagles have allowed season-best performances from Kirk Cousins, Sam Howell, and Mac Jones this season. The script absolutely calls for Dallas to spread the field and throw the football once again this week. Star running back Tony Pollard has struggled in a more traditional role this season, but the Cowboys may need to find ways to get him involved in the passing game in space, which suits his skill set better anyway, as the Eagles are sure to be keyed in on Lamb. The Eagles have a top-five pass rush, and Dallas has had inconsistent offensive line play this season, furthering the chances that Pollard and the tight ends are featured on shorter passing game concepts. Ultimately, the Cowboys' defense has proven to be most effective when playing with a lead, and Dallas will almost certainly have to approach this game with an aggressive mindset if they want to jump out ahead of the current top team in the NFL. How Philadelphia will try to win For as impressive as the Eagles have been this season, and how much hype and publicity they receive, they still have a lot to prove. While they sit atop the NFL standings as the only one-loss team in the league, their 7-1 record features only one victory over a team with a winning record, a 31-17 Week 7 win over the Dolphins. It's really no fault of their own, they can't control who is on their schedule, but for all the Super Bowl hype that teams get at this point in the season, we really don't know that much about how they will match up and handle the top teams in the league. The Eagles have narrow victories over the Patriots and Commanders, twice, along with an ugly loss to the Jets on their resume. Over their last five games, Philadelphia has not led by more than one score through three quarters of any game. Again, wins are wins, but it does show the Eagles are not as dominant as their record may indicate. A huge divisional matchup against a team with momentum and playmakers on both sides of the ball will be a big test as the Eagles head into their bye week with a chance to put some distance between themselves and the rest of the division. The Eagles' offense as a whole is relatively run heavy, passing on only 57.9% of their plays, but a lot of that has to do with game script. When adjusting for situation, the Eagles rank 8th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation. They have shown that they are happy to ride their dominant offensive line, which ranks first in PFF run blocking grade, to grind out the clock and coast to victories when their opponents are unable to keep up with them. They have also shown that they are more than happy to let Jalen Hurts air it out when necessary, as evidenced in last week's victory over the commanders when Hurts threw 38 passes for 4 touchdowns and 319 passing yards. Through eight weeks, Hurts has attempted at least 37 passes on five occasions. Last year, Hurts reached that number only two times in 15 games. A.J. Brown is on a dominant tear, setting the NFL record for consecutive games with at least 125 receiving yards last week. Devontae Smith has taken a step back this season as Brown asserted his alpha status, but he is coming off a big game and had a career-best game against the Cowboys last season. Meanwhile, Dallas Goddard and running back to Andre Swift have provided consistent receiving threats to complement Brown and Smith. The Eagles have a lot of weapons, including Hertz, who is currently nursing a knee injury and had his lowest rushing total of the season against Washington. The Dallas defense is very good on paper, but has feasted on some below-average quarterbacks and offenses. They can certainly perform at a very high level but they are likely to struggle with the combination of the elite running attack that the Eagles offensive line provides and the talented playmakers they must account for in the secondary. Likeliest Game Flow The Cowboys' home-road splits have been significant this season. They are 3-0 in their home game so far this season, with a point differential of plus 78, an average margin of victory of 26 points. Meanwhile, they are 2-2 two two on the road with a negative one-point differential despite a season-opening 40-point victory over the Giants in New York. The Eagles, meanwhile, have scored 30-plus points in all three of their home games so far this season, and have lost only three home games in the last 24 months. Obviously, anything can happen in a one-week sample, but the greater context of both of these teams points to a situation where the Eagles are most likely to control this game. Dallas plays at the league's third slowest pace of play, 29.9 seconds per snap, ahead of only San Francisco and Tennessee, while the Eagles rank only a couple of spots ahead of them at 29.5 seconds per snap. These stats may be somewhat misleading, however, due to the fact that both teams have a lot of positive game script that has skewed things. At the end of the day, this game's pace is likely to come down to how the up-and-down Cowboys offense is able to perform, as we know the Eagles are a team that is comfortable playing in a variety of situations. If the Cowboys struggle, it could be an ugly game with a slow pace as they become one-dimensional against a ferocious defensive front. However, if the Cowboys are able to push the Eagles at all, then we could be in store for a barn burner with two high-profile teams trading blows. The struggles of the Philadelphia secondary against much less talented offenses and quarterbacks certainly point to a situation where the Cowboys should be able to apply some pressure and therefore keep this game interesting and exciting.